Well, what a blessing to be with you again today. Let's open our Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 19. Uh, if you remember, uh, last week we looked at Jesus' scourging and his, uh, how the mob, um, the mob really took over here, uh, over Pilate. Pilate, who was the one who was in control there in Judea. And we find that the religious leaders were the ones who really manipulated Pilate to give them what they wanted. And what they wanted was to get rid of Jesus. They wanted to get rid of him. They, they, didn't, uh, they were jealous of him. Uh, many people, instead of flocking to them, were now flocking to Jesus. And that usually doesn't bode well in the pride of man. The man mankind always wants to be preeminent. That they want to be the one that's in control. I don't know why. Everybody wants to be... There's a song back in the 80s. I think everybody wants to rule the world. I, I probably shouldn't even bring that up. But anyway, it's true. Everybody wants to rule the world. It's happening right now. There's a man over in the, in the far east trying to rule the world. But anyway, they wanted to have control over everything. And Jesus was really uh, just turning everything up on, its, up on its end. And so last week we looked at them finally getting, pi or getting Jesus and, and scourging him, and just the horrible act that that was. The scourging oftentimes killed the, the, the person who was being scourged. Oftentimes they didn't even have to take them to be crucified because they would die from blood loss and other uh, reasons uh, during the scourging. And it was a horrible thing. It was a horrible thing. In fact, it was so bad that as Jesus, as he was leaving, and this is where we left off last week, is as he was beaten, and as, I mean, there were many things that happened to him, and we looked at that last week. I don't want to rehash that. But at the end of that scourging, remember, Jesus was so physically weak and so uh, critically wounded by that time that he began to carry that patibulum. Remember that cross beam that they would affix to Jesus, and he would have to carry that 75 to 125 pound beam of wood in critical condition. Uh, about a mile away to be crucified. And so he would be carrying that, and at some point, his body just was not... And, and, and this is what's so interesting to me about the incarnation. And this is the mystery, that Jesus was 100% man, and he had physical limitations. And this was one of them, and, and this proved it. He was 100% man, but he was also 100% God. That is the mystery of the incarnation, the fact that God himself, he was in, he, he was, Jesus is God. He was the word become flesh and dwelt among us. The beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and the word they crucified, they crucified the word of God, Jesus Christ. And a mystery to us is that how he, in his humanity, he would pay that price for us. But he was also Almighty God who could have delivered himself from this horrible atrocity that he was going through. Very easy for him. He even told them. He even told his disciples. It would be very easy for me to call down legions of angels and it would be an over in an instant. Talk about, you know, when Jesus' second coming, when he comes, believe me, it's going to be a bloodbath. Because it's not about bringing the world to salvation at that point. It's He's coming for judgment. And are you on the right side of this? Are you on the right side of Christ? 
Have you given your heart to him? Listen, he does not delight in the death of the wicked. But there is only one possibility for us. You know, many people say, well, I want to go to heaven. Well, many people want to go to heaven, but they they choose their own means to get to heaven. But Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man, no man comes unto the Father except through me, he said. So it's only through him. And we have to make a decision. I mean, is there anything about Jesus? I mean, honestly, that you would say, I can't let this man rule over me because... Whatever that list is. Is there a list like that? There's no list like that to me because I know he's true. I know he's righteous. I know he's compassionate. I know he's loving. I know he's all of these things that I am not, and that's why I need him. I need him for many reasons. I need him to be saved. I need him to give me a new heart. Can anybody agree with me on that? I need that, and you do too. The path, he said, is narrow. Narrow is the path that leads to life, but wide is the road and wide is the gate that leads to destruction. But he wants us all on that narrow path. Yes, it's a narrow path, but it's open to every single person who is breathing. Every single person, no matter how wicked and awful they are. And I fit that description (laughs) before I came to Christ. And even now, honestly, I don't deserve him even now. None of us do. But Jesus underwent that scourging. And we're just going to look at, we're going to finish the chapter hopefully today. But I want to read now, because remember, Jesus was so emaciated. He was so uh, critically injured. He was dehydrated. He hadn't slept. He hadn't drank anything. He hadn't eaten anything. And put yourself in that position. Because not only was he those things, but then he was, he was scourged. He was beat on the head. He was punched with a blindfold or a, a sack over his head in a sense. And he was beaten, and then finally had to carry this very heavy wooden beam to the cross to be crucified. And then Simon, remember, Simon the Cyrenian from northern Africa, he just happened to be there, and because Jesus fell, because he couldn't, physically couldn't take it, they said, Simon, you carry the cross the rest of the way, and he did. And that's where we pick up in verse 17, and notice what it says. It says, and he, Jesus, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on the either side, and Jesus in the center. And now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, notice, and it was written in the Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, and therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. And then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, they took his garments, made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic And now the tunic was without seam, woven from top in one piece. And they said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but let us cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, 
Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. And now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it, into, or put it up to his mouth. And so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Gave up his spirit. And I titled this morning's message, That the Scripture Might Be Fulfilled. Because throughout this chapter, in fact, in, chapter, in John's Gospel, 12 times it's mentioned to us uh, something about it, it, has been, it has been written, or this happened because it was written. And it's always pointing us back to the Old Testament. And we're going to see that. And four times here in chapter 19 it says, because it was written, because the, the, so that the Scripture could be fulfilled, this happened. And so that leads me to believe that Jesus' death on the cross was no mistake. It was not a, uh, uh, something that happened by mistake at all. It was, it was known before the foundation of the earth. He was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. That's what, that's what the Revelation 13 verse 8 tells us, that Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. So that means that before Genesis 1 verse 1, where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, before he even did that, before the creation event and the, day, the six days of creation, before that, it was already determined that man would sin because there has to be free choice. You have the right to choose. We have the right to choose. And I tell you, that is the most It is the scariest thing that we have, the ability to choose. And isn't that what love really is? It's a choice. It's not even so much a feeling. I love it when, you know, when you're first married or even you've been married for a long time and you still have that love, that commitment with your spouse. And that, that's a good thing because it is a commitment. It's more than just the, 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 the flash-in-the-pan emotions of, of romance and love, and, and that's all wonderful and good. But it is also, and most importantly, it is a commitment. It is a decision. It's a purpose of the will. So important to remember that. And that's what Jesus did. He willingly went to the cross for us. He willingly went. And the prophecies in the Old Testament are replete. Many, there's so many things. But that the scripture might be fulfilled. And in the remaining of this chapter, we're going to see at least four different topics, or I wouldn't really call them themes, but you could, I guess you could call them that. And that is the unbridled hatred of Jesus by the Jews, even in his death. And then Jesus also being the good shepherd right to the very end, his provision and his care for his mother Mary, even while he was in agony on the cross, and certainly the prophetic word, again, nothing was by mistake. These things happened. That it, because it was written, these things have happened. And the bold witnesses, we find, uh, excuse me, I'm going to tie this shoe really quick because I can tell right now that I am going to trip and it will be more of a, a, an interesting service than it might already be. So, 
But the bold witnesses of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, we see them coming out of their shell in a sense. They were secret disciples, kind of in the background, not wanting to cause a big ruckus, certainly not wanting to uh, muddy the waters. And we're going to see these two men at the death of Christ come out of their shell and say, you know what? I believe in him and I'm willing to be identified with Christ. I would encourage you not to be a silent witness. Excuse me. Don't be a silent witness. Be one that's very open about your faith. Excuse me. Our world today tells you, you know, you should never talk about religion or politics or, um, or the Yankees and the Red Sox. You know, you can't talk about those things, otherwise people get upset. Well, you know what? When it comes to the gospel, let them get upset. Because, folks, you hold the truth. We hold the truth in earthen vessels. We do. It's our responsibility. It's our great joy. It's our great privilege to go out and share that truth with people who don't know Christ. They need to know him. Jesus said to a very religious man, Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you've got all the trappings. You're a Pharisee. You've got all these things happening, but you are missing the boat. And there are so many people today missing the boat because they go to church, because they've given lots of money to the church. Hey, listen, you know, there's nothing wrong with giving. We should be giving. We should offer tithes and offerings to the Lord and for his work that's happening here and outside of this building. We should, and you ought to. But he doesn't care about the money. He wants you. He cares about you. That's all he cares about. And Nicodemus and Joseph finally come out of their shell, and I love that. But there were a number of places in the scripture where John mentions, you know, as the scripture has said, or has not the scripture said, or but that the scripture may be fulfilled. And four different times and four different verses, just in this chapter alone. And the first one, you know, was Jesus, um, speaking of Jesus' tunic or inner garment, we'll see this in the 24th verse of this chapter. They said to among themselves, the officers or the, the soldiers, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, uh, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now these Roman men, we'll find out this later, they didn't really believe in the scriptures. They, they, didn't, they weren't following a script. All right, we'll get to that. But notice also in the 28th verse, And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. And then in verse 36 and verse 37, these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. You know, there was someone that I knew many years ago who tried to convince me that all these people, the Roman soldiers, Judas, the apostles, even Jesus was following some kind of script like actors in a play because they misunderstood these phrases that we are talking about right now, that it might be fulfilled or that it should be fulfilled. You know, these men, Judas acted on his own behalf. You know, he, he, of his own evil heart, he betrayed Jesus. And the Romans could care less about the Jewish scriptures. They weren't faithful men. They didn't have faith in God. And so parting the garments was them was just was not following a script. 
They did that unknowingly fulfilling Scripture. That's why John gives the commentary that it might be fulfilled, which said that they parted my garments. They weren't following some script. They could care less about it. It was their, it was their lot to receive the clothing of the one that they executed. That was what the Roman law allowed, that they could have their clothing. So this is something that they did with all the criminals that they crucified. But they were unaware that they were fulfilling prophecy given, in this case, over a thousand years ago, before Jesus was born. Unwittingly falling into these things. And see, that to me is encouraging because God is outside of time. And when he writes, and he inspired David to write Psalm 22, when he inspired Isaiah to write uh, Isaiah 53, the, that chapter about the suffering servant, when God did that, he knew what he was doing, and he was prophesying in advance. He knew what was coming. But none of those men had any clue. They were just going by their own natural instincts. They were responsible for everything they did. Everything that they did, everything that they said, everything that they did, they were responsible for. God just has this wonderful attribute of himself that no one else has, and that's omniscience and omnipotence and his omnipresence. There is no one in the universe who has those three, but he does. And he can tell things with pinpoint accuracy. That's why the critics hate the Bible, because the people, uh, things like Daniel and Genesis and Isaiah, they, they, they try to discredit these men. And yet, history proves, and things come up all the time that just give the truth, the veracity of the word of God. And then the scholars in the ivory towers at Yale and Harvard are going, well, 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 whatever. They need to bow the knee to Jesus. And they, yeah, you're right, they will. <laughs> One day every tongue will confess and every knee will bow that Jesus Christ is God. Amen? But there is a reason that John is leading people to the scriptures by saying that it, was, that it might be fulfilled, that the, the scripture might be fulfilled because he wants to let his readers know that Jesus' crucifixion was not a mistake. He wasn't a martyr. This was something that the prophets had been prophesying for over hundreds of years and even a few thousand years. And so John is constantly getting people to focus on the word of God. Is it any wonder that he, that he is doing this because it's part of the purpose behind his gospel? What does it tell us? At the very end, of, or near the end of John's gospel, but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. And so from the beginning, John has been pounding the drum of the importance of not only the written word of God, which we hold in our hands, which they held in their hands in scrolls of the Old Testament, but he's also pounding the drum, pointing to the physical word of God. The incarnate word of God, Jesus Christ. Because the word of God and the word of God are the same. I mean, they're different, but his word is not inconsistent with who he is, with his character. There's no schism. There's no inconsistencies about who Jesus is and everything he stands for and this that you hold in your hand. God made sure of it. He made sure of it. And so we need now more than ever to be focused on the word of God, rather more so than what we see on the news, what we see on Facebook, what we see on Twitter, what we see on Telegram or Getter or True Social, YouTube or Apple or Google Podcasts. 
Let the word of God be front and center in your life and in your heart. Spend more time on that more than anything else. And I need to be aware of that because there are times where I get out of balance. And you're no different than I am. And I know this because I hear you. You share a, you'll share something with me. And, and that might be all fine and good. But there are some that have shared things with me that are just out in left field. That are just heretical. And it's like, who are you going to listen to? Are you going to listen to what God has to say? Or are you going to listen to what these people have to say? And just in case you haven't been paying attention, the things that God has been speaking about in his word, the very groundwork of it, has been being laid and it's being formed before our eyes. And soon, in his time, it will all be fulfilled. And it's getting clearer and clearer, isn't it? The last two years have become, I tell you, the microscope was like far away. Things were kind of fuzzy. Now it's looking pretty clear, folks. Are you aware of that? Are you awake We need to be awake. We need to be awake. We need to be understanding about what's going on. And we need to be Bereans more than ever. Acts 17.11, the Bereans, Paul admonished them because they searched the scriptures daily to see if those things that he told them were true. They searched the scriptures to find out. But the bedrock of our faith is the word of God and nothing else. In Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 14, it says, Paul says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? And notice, here it is again, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of priests, who bring glad tidings of good things. From Isaiah 52, verse 7. It is written, right? But I say to you, have they not heard? Yes, indeed, their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the, of the world. Here he's quoting from Psalm 19, verse 19. Now he says, but I say, did Israel not know? First Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation, and I'll move you to anger by a foolish nation. Deuteronomy 32, verse 21. But Israel, to Israel he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Again, quoting from Isaiah 65, verse 2. Notice the importance that the Apostle Paul holds on the Word of God. Quoting often from the Old Testament. Just like John now is telling us, these things happen because it was written. Because it was written. Even Jesus, when he was tempted of the devil after his baptism, he didn't respond to Satan with what was happening on CNN or on Fox News. He wasn't quoting Anthony Fauci. Or another person, another pastor even, on YouTube. He quoted from Deuteronomy. Specifically. All, all, all those times that the Satan, he quoted scripture. And Matthew and Mark in their gospel account record Jesus from the cross pointing everyone to the scripture. And is this a coincidence? You recall in Matthew 27, it's not recorded for us here in this gospel, but in Matthew it is. It says, About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Father, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knew why he was forsaken, but let me suggest to you that because he had never experienced that before, that, that was probably the hardest thing, more so than even the blows and the bloody mess that he was. I believe that that part was the part that really seared him was the fact that God the Father looked down upon his Son, whom he had placed the sin of the whole world on, and the Bible says that God looked away from him. He basically forsook his Son on the cross and looked away for a a season. And that, folks, is, I believe, the blow, (laughs) the stripe that God put upon his Son. I believe that is what the most important part of our salvation was what happened that nobody could see. Many people have been crucified, but Jesus had the sin of the world and he paid the price complete and full. That's why he said, it is finished. To tell us day I, it is paid in full. But was this any coincidence that he said this? I don't think it is. Because we also know that in Psalm 22, uh, it starts off the psalm in that very same phrase. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, was Jesus just saying this? I believe it was a genuine cry from his heart, but I believe he was also pointing people to the cross, pointing people back to David's psalm. Why are you so far from helping me and from my words and my groanings? David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, continues to write the words in the rest of Psalm 22, as if Jesus is speaking them in the first person on the cross. It's quite amazing, actually. David, yes, David. In Psalm 22, verse 6, what does it tell us? But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head. He's... He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delighted in him. Weren't those the very things that people said as they sneered upon Jesus and the cross? That's exactly what happened. And why is that? Were they following a script? Did they read Psalm 22 before that day? They didn't even know that Jesus was going to be crucified. Were they following some kind of script? Oh, we've got to say this now so that the scripture can... No, it wasn't that at all. It just happened, and God knew that it was going to happen. A long time before it happened, he could write it down and say, this is what's going to happen. And nobody's going to be following a play. Nobody is following a script. This is just man on his own, making his own decisions. And again, God just has the wonderful advantage of knowing. You read Psalm 139. It talks about God knows our very thoughts before we think them. The words that we speak before we speak them, he already knows what they are. And yet... He loves you. Think about that. See, you and I, if I knew that I was going to, you know, if God you know, knows me and he knows you and he knows how awful I was before I came to Christ, if I had that foreknowledge of me, I would say, I would have flushed me down the toilet. I would have cast me into outer darkness. Are you that ungrateful, Mr. Kellogg, that after all that I've already done for you, that you were going to blaspheme my name and, and continue in your wretched sin? All of that, well, I'm done with you. See, that's the natural man. But God says, oh, no, I've got a plan for your life. I know what's going to happen, Rob, and you don't even know it. You're not even aware of it, but I'm going to bring people into your life. You're going to get radically saved, and ultimately one day you're going to be a pastor <laughs> and a worshiper. I had no idea. There's no way I could have made that happen. And your, your story is the same. 
Your story is the same. And he goes on in Psalm 22 and verse 12, Many bulls have surrounded me, many strong bulls have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. And I think of what's happening in the invisible realm as Satan and the hordes of hell were all around. And the Bible doesn't tell us this, but I'm I'm sure it was happening. That while he hung on that cross and while he was going through his agony, Satan and the demons were just all around and Jesus was aware of them. And that's why I believe that David here prophesying, many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. And for dogs or unclean people have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Underline that, because that's not the way the Jews killed people or for capital punishment. They stoned them. And by the way, crucifixion wasn't invented by the Jews. It was invented, we believe, by the Persians. And then the Romans mastered the art of crucifixion. They were masters at it. They were cruel. But a thousand years before, the prophets tell us, The prophet David, yes, King David was also a prophet. And how encouraging this would be for those who understood this at that time. They could go to the Psalms because Jesus was telling them, My God, my God, why has you forsaken me? And any one of those Jews standing there, having been in the synagogue since they were just an infant, would recognize that's the first line in Psalm 22. They would have all gone back and read it and gone, How did we miss this? How did we miss this? It was foretold in David's time. David wrote this. And see, this is the message this morning. Stay focused on the word of God and spend a great deal more time in it than anything else. The word of God will give you peace and comfort. The news, the mainstream media, and YouTube will not, but they'll rather produce fear and doubt in you. The word of God will stabilize you, but the media and the news will sensationalize events and they will manipulate you. The word of God will bring you closer to God, but the media and uh, all of that will get you to focus on humanistic solutions rather than what God can do and will do. Focus on Jesus and the word of God. Amen? Let's look at the first verse. Notice in, in verse 17, excuse me. So he, bearing his cross, went out to the place called Uh, the place of the skull called Golgotha. And uh, remember uh, that Jesus um, bore his cross at some point, but then had to have uh, Simon, the Cyrenian, continue to bear it. But the word skull here is a Greek word called cranian, where we get cranium, which is where we get the word skull or calvary. It's the same thing. And Golgotha, this is also the name of the place, the place of a skull, it's, it's, it's an Aramaic, and that's exactly, it's the place where this event occurred. And Calvary, uh, the Latin is Calvaria, or skull, it means the same thing as Golgotha. Here's a picture of Golgotha back in 1900, and you'll notice that uh, right there in the, the center to the left, you'll see the... Um, Right here, you can see the the skull figure. 
And that was back in 1900. And where Jesus was ultimately laid to rest was somewhere over here in a garden to the left of that. And notice this road down here underneath. This was a main thoroughway, thoroughfare through uh, Jerusalem. And that's where, and we believe that Jesus was actually crucified probably down here in this area somewhere where everybody could see it. Everybody could see it. And so we'll see, you know, this... Um, We'll see that there, <laughs> the, what it looks like, the skull. And the Romans would want this to be a spectacle. So as we look at this and we see that road, they would want everybody to see this is what happens when you come against Rome. We're going to crucify and they put them up where everybody could see driving by. Because these roads, this road that you see here had been there for a very long time. In fact, there, there's a, there's a, um, uh, they, they turned this into a bus station actually today. You can actually go there and there's a bus station right there. But all these ancient roads are now paved. They were good for a reason because they cut through the mountains. They, everybody figured that out and they finally just started making, everybody started being on these roads and finally one day they're like, you know what, we, we better just pave this road. And so today they're paved. The road going from Jericho all the way up to Jerusalem is now paved. But many, 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 many years ago, it was unpaved. It was just a dirt road. And based on the number of facts, we, we don't believe that Jesus was crucified at the place where uh, some people believe he was crucified in this uh, traditional tomb over the uh, Church of the Holy Sepulchre over here, where we believe he was crucified was over here. And we don't have time to really go into all that, but Gordon's Calvary is the one that you saw the picture of. So many different things uh, prove that that was the place, and I believe with all my heart that that is the place where he was crucified. But notice in verse 18 back in our text, so there they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus being in the center. And even this, even the fact that he was crucified between these two men fulfilled scripture in Isaiah going back 700 years before Christ was born. Notice, therefore I will divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. That's what Jesus was. He was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. He was there between two robbers that deserved to be there. He was the only one who did not deserve to be there. So Pilate, verse 19, wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And you remember... That this, uh, this piece that he would write uh, on would be called the, uh, the titulus, which is basically uh, the things that were held against him, his charges. When they would put, uh, and you can see it in the slide before here, that they would put that right above where Jesus would be hanging. And those were what condemned him. This is why he was crucified. And I find it interesting when we look at the hatred of the Jews, it says, Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to the Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. And by this time, Pilate had been, he realized he'd been manipulated, he was cornered, and he had to acquiesce to their request. 
And he wasn't very happy with them. And so, tongue-in-cheek, he wrote on there, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, which is a very messianic title. And they knew that. And they're like, you know, and their hatred was so great that, I mean, they got everything they wanted. They got the false trial. They got the false arrest. They got the whole thing. They got him finally to crucify him. And now that he's dying on the cross, they're like, no, we want, we want something more. Don't, don't say that he was the, the king of the Jews, but that he said that he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate says, what I've written, I've written. And I bet at that point he's just like, you know what, I'm out of here. These people are driving me crazy. Driving me crazy. And Pilate answered, what I have written what I, is what I've written. Hmm. In Luke chapter 23, verse 39... It's only recorded in, uh, in Luke's gospel. Something interesting. You won't find it in this gospel. But again, remember the gospels are... Uh, when, you, when you take the, all four gospels and you put them together and you put them in a sequence, and people have done that, a harmony of the gospels is what it is. And it's really interesting to see how these things just... As you start putting these gospel accounts together, you get a big, the big picture of what happened and when it happened and the chronology of what happened. And it's really interesting to do that because one of the things that happened, and I say this to encourage you this morning, because Luke is the only one who mentioned this in Luke 23, verse 30. He says, then one of the criminals who were hanging blasphemed him, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the others answering rebuked him, saying, do you not even fear God, seeing that you were under the same condemnation? We indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, notice this, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This man is in heaven. The other one, no. But this man is in glory. They call this an 11th hour conversion. That man, when he was put on the cross, he was destined for hell. And somewhere on that cross, as he has observed all these things and Jesus' demeanor and everything that he's doing, he came to realize, you know what, this is the Son of God. And on that cross, as he hung between heaven and earth, ready to go to hell, he gave his heart to Christ. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. That should encourage you because here's the deal. Many of us, we don't, you know, you may have lived a whole life. Maybe you're 70 years old and you've lived a life of debauchery and sin and, you, and you're like, well, it's too late for me. Hey, listen, it's never too late. This guy, another few, another hour or so, and he was going to hell. But he gave his heart to Christ. It is never too late. As long as you have breath in your lungs and a will and a, a desire to make a change and, and, and choose him, it's not ever too late. It doesn't matter what you've done either. You could be a serial killer. You could be a, 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 a whatever it is, the, the most horrible things that man can do. You could have done all those things and God would say, I still accept you if you will come to me. This man came to Jesus at the 11th hour, probably 1159. 11:59. He came to him. So then the, verse 23, the soldiers when they had crucified Jesus, they took his garments, made four parts to each soldier apart. And also the tunic, which was sewn in one large piece. And so they tore the outside of his garment, the cloak that he had. They ripped that into four pieces. 
or tore it into four pieces, and they distribute it to each of the quaternions. But the, the, the seam, the, the, the cloth that he had wrapping his whole body from top to bottom up here down to, the, to his feet, that was all one thing. And so they cast lots for it. They cast lots for it. That the scripture, notice, might be fulfilled. They divided my garments among them, and my, for my clothing they cast lots. Where did that come from? Well, it came from Psalm 22. And even in Matthew's gospel, Matthew refers to David as a prophet. In this same area of the scripture, the parallel account of this crucifixion, it says they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. Speaking of David, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothes they cast lots. David the prophet, David the king. But notice now in verse 25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, who we believe is Salome. You remember Salome? Salome was the mother of James and John, the two brothers, the two fishermen, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder. Salome was the mother of those two men. That means that Jesus' first cousins were James and John, the apostle John and his brother James. And even John the Baptist was his cousin as well because he was the son of Elizabeth. All these people are related. And yet, knowing Jesus, they were the ones to say they knew Jesus more than anybody else. They grew up with him. And at one point, John the Baptist, he gave his heart to Christ, obviously. James and John, having, gone, having been around him at some point all of his life, said this truly is him and we're following him. And even his own brothers, after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, his own brothers, Jude and James, they came to faith as well in Christ. And they wrote the letters that we have in our Bible, Jude and James in the New Testament. They too, think of the veracity of that. Think of what that means. If my brother was to say, Rob, you know, if I, if I was to claim to be God, which I would never do, not a good idea. And my brother could come to say, well, you're not God because you've been very imperfect. Do you remember when you did this? Do you remember when you did that? And I'm like, ooh, I guess I'm not all that, am I? My brother could come to my, uh, to, to my side and say, no, you're not who you claim to be. But all of these men said, we know who he is, and we've never seen any unrighteousness in him. He never disobeyed mom and dad. He never did you know, evil things, and they recognized that. And notice, and when Jesus therefore saw his mother, so um, his sister's mother was there, uh, um, Mary herself, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Wow, what a lot of Marys. Think if somebody asked her name, four of them would go, hello? Hey, Mary, what? And all four of them would turn their head. But when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom Jesus loved, who is that? It's John. He says, behold. He said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And he was looking at John. He says, woman, behold your son, John. And then he looked at John and he says, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. And Jesus was responsible for his mother's care because he was the oldest 
in the family. It was his responsibility. I find it very interesting, Jesus as the good shepherd, even while he's in agony, even moments before he would give up the ghost, he is always thinking about others. He's not even considering his own self and and going through the horrible torture that he was going through. He made sure that John took care of his mother. Not his brothers. His brothers didn't know him at that time, but John he could trust. He's like, John, here's your mother. You take care of her. I'm entrusting her to you. And John would ultimately take her and he would go to Ephesus and he would go to the Isle of Patmos and he would write the Revelation and he would go back to Ephesus and ultimately Mary and the Apostle John would ultimately, we believe, die in Ephesus. Their tombs are there. But Jesus, the good shepherd, made sure to take care of his mother And then after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Two scriptures that come to mind is the Psalm 22, 15. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my my jaws and have brought me to the dust of the earth. And even in Psalm 69, again, another Psalm of David says, they also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. And that's exactly what happened on the cross. And it says in verse 29, Now a vessel full of sour wine was, getting, was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. Now earlier, now he received this into his body. He received some of it. But before this, there was another time where they tried to give him some kind of uh, uh, liquid that had some, um, uh, something in it that would dull the pain. And Jesus didn't take that. He knew what it was, and he refused it, taking the full brunt of of this judgment of Almighty God upon himself, wouldn't even allow himself the the respite of having a little bit of painkiller. No, he refused that, but he took a little bit of this wine because he was thirsty and obviously very um, dying of thirst as well. Notice when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. And this phrase, it is finished, I don't believe he just hung on the cross and go, it's finished. No, I believe it was a victory cry. I believe with everything, his very last words, his feet, remember, were nailed into that post. And his arms and his, you know, the nails and all the torture, and he's, and I don't know if you've, I've never had this happen, but having your legs, you know, with a spike going through that into the wood, you know how excruciating that on your, on your nerve, that you, and you're standing on that. And then with everything he, he had, he took one final breath and probably just stood up with the, the excruciating pain and finally being able to get breath in his lungs. The one last thing he said is, it is paid in full. The Greek word is tetelestai. They found papyrus fragments around the tax collecting areas, and that's what they would do. When somebody would write their taxes and pay their taxes, they would write tetelestai, meaning your taxes are paid in full. It's paid in full. And what did he pay for? He paid for the sin of the world. He paid for everything that you and I are enjoying today. How great and glorious is our master and our king. Amen? For such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy and harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. 
has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this Jesus did for all, once and for all, when he offered up himself. No longer any need for any more sacrifices. There's no longer any need for sacrifice. Jesus did it once and for all. And therefore, verse 31, because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken on that uh, and that they might be taken away because it was taking too long. Our, our, we have a religious festival, by the way, and it's, it's coming up very shortly. Let's, let's get on with this. We want to we be a part of our holy gathering. We want to eat the Passover, not be defiled by this. We want to get that sight. It's, it's an eyesore. I, I just can't look at it. It's going to ruin my dinner. I want to eat lamb, but I can't look at that. The breaking of the legs was called in the Latin curifragium. It's when they would break the legs to hasten their death because they could keep somebody alive on the cross for some time. It would be excruciatingly painful, but they could do it. But they wanted the legs broken so that, because when the legs are broken, you don't have any way to support yourself now. Now you are slumped like this, and your arms are up like this, and when you have your whole weight on your arms and you're up like this, there is no way possible that you have the ability to take a breath of air and exhale, it becomes impossible. And you sit there, you, be, you, you can't do it. And eventually you die from asphyxiation because you, don't, you can't get any oxygen in your lungs. And that is what he went through. And then the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first one and the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead they did not break his legs but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out and they know that he died because when a person dies the blood inside the body actually uh, begins to separate and when they pierced his right side right where his heart would be it punctured this uh, sack around his heart they call it uh, pericardial and plural infusion or effusions. Is that right? I think that's right. I want to get that right. Yes, effusions. And basically what that is, is a sac around your heart and your lungs that when you die, it fills with water. And it proved that he had already died. And water and blood came out when they did that. They wanted to make sure that he was dead. But they didn't break any bones of his body. Why? Because that it might be fulfilled. That not, not one of his bones should be broken. It tells us in Exodus. In one house, the Passover lamb shall be eaten. Because Jesus is our Passover lamb. And even the type of the Passover was adhered to. Because not one bone of his was broken. And back in Exodus, during the, um, when God is laying out for them the stipulations for the Passover... In one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. Jesus' bones were not broken. Fulfilling the Passover lamb. On the Passover, on that high day. Was that just a coincidence? No, it wasn't. That it may be fulfilled. That it may be fulfilled. 
And again, another scripture, verse 37, says, They shall look on him whom they have pierced. And certainly we know that that comes from Psalm 22, but it also comes from Zechariah, who said this. And this is going forward even to further uh, in the future to us today, when Jesus comes back in his second coming. It says in Zechariah 12, verse 10, <coughs> excuse me, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, and then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one who grieves for a a firstborn. And so Jesus bore that punishment, and the scars are still in his side. The night of his resurrection, remember, he went in the upper room with the guys. And remember Thomas, who now the second time, Thomas, the first time he wasn't there, a week later, they're standing in the upper room and Jesus appears. And Thomas says, I, I, you know, he said before, I won't believe unless I put my hand in his side and examine his wounds. Well, Jesus, a week after the resurrection, appears in that upper room again. And they're standing there and Thomas was there. And Jesus says, Thomas, come and look. See where they pierced me. Look at this. Put your fingers in the nail prints where they, where, they, where they crucified me, where they drove the Roman nail into my wrist area and affixed me to the wood. Come and check it out. Come and see. Don't be unbelieving, but believe, he said to him. Amazing. Amazing. So after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and he took the body of Jesus. Now Joseph, we call him Joseph of Arimathea because he came from the town of Arimathea, sort of like Judas Iscariot. His last name wasn't Iscariot. It was Judas. There are many people named Judas because back at that time, Judas was a popular name because of Judas Maccabeus, a while earlier than that. But now nobody calls their son Judas. Good reason. I wouldn't either. But everybody named, but Judas of Iscariot, the town of Iscariot. Joseph of Arimathea, a town about 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem is where this man came from. He was also a member of the council or the Sanhedrin. He was one of those 71 members who would preside over, this, over these things that Jesus went through, although he wasn't in, complicit with it. He didn't agree with what everybody was saying, but it didn't matter because the mob took over and the mob had their way. Kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? I keep saying that. I should really stop. So when Nicodemus also, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a pound bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds, and Nicodemus himself was also part of the Sanhedrin. So both of these men were part of the ruling class of religious Jews in the land. Only two of them, out of all 71 of them, only two of them that we know of were willing to be blown out. Because now when they went to Pilate and asked for the body, they were marked men. Before they were kind of in the shadows and believing in Christ, but not wanting to make a stir. But now they made a bold proclamation. They were willing. Now, think of this. In order for them to take the body off of the cross, which was bloody and a mess, they defiled themselves. They wouldn't be able legally to take part in that Passover. 
because of the blood. They held a dead body. The Bible is very clear about that in Exodus and Leviticus. You, tuck a, you touch a dead body, you're, you're, you're unclean for a while. For at least, I think, what was it a, a day or something like that? And so these guys weren't able to take part in the festivities, but they were willing to identify with this one. And they took the body of Jesus, they bound it in strips, notice, strips of linen, not one sheet like the Shroud of Turin. That's a big fake, all right? We'll look at that next week. But they wound him in strips of cloth, and they packed his body with aloes and myrrhs, a hundred pounds of it. They just caked him in and wrapped him up in this thing to slow down the decay and also to prevent the smell. But it's okay, because in three days, he was going to be smelling like a champion. Right? Right? And they didn't embalm their dead like the Egyptians did, but they wrapped them in spices. And when, typically when the body would decay and all that would be left would be the bones, they would put their bodies in what we call an ossuary, which is really just a bone box. And the whole family would be in there. Ancestors would be inside this bone box. They would take the lid off, and once the, all that was left was the bones after the decaying process, they would just gather the bones and put them in the box. But they didn't have to do that with Jesus because he rose physically. There was nothing left behind except for the wraps, and they collapsed themselves around him, which we will look at next week again. But notice, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And remember that picture that I showed to you earlier at Golgotha. It was nearby. There was a garden. And there's a lot about this that we could talk about that we don't have time for. But there was a garden right to the left of Golgotha, and it's still there today. And that's where Joseph of Arimathea's tomb was. It was his tomb. He put Jesus in his tomb. In fact, Matthew's gospel in uh, chapter 27 is the only one that mentions that fact, that it was Joseph of Arimathea. He carved that out himself. And in doing so, he made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Joseph of Arimathea was a very wealthy man. Not everybody had a cave to be buried in. But Joseph of Arimathea gave up his own place to put Jesus in there. It was reserved for his wife and himself and his kids. And you can visit that tomb today. And by the way, it's still empty. I've been in there three times, and every time I go in, I weep thankful for what has happened, thankful for what Jesus did, but because he made his, he was rich in his death because only the rich could have a, a tomb like that. But again, it's okay because he was only there for the weekend. So they laid Jesus there because of the Jews' preparation for the tomb was nearby, and I love that. The next event that we're going to read about, and we'll look at this next Sunday, is the resurrection. You know, today, excuse me, the, the crucifixion and the resurrection are really the most important parts, the most critical parts of all of the scripture that we're in right now. And I want to encourage you today as we take communion, the worship team, go ahead and come on up. And as the worship team is, uh, as we're worshiping, feel free to come up and bring the communion elements back to your seat and hold them. We'll take them together. 
But if you have not given your heart to Jesus today, please do so. Because he loves you. I know it's a cliche thing, and you've probably seen this before, but you know what? He loved you this much. He spread out his hands, and he, would, he says, I love you that much. I'll even go even to the death of a cross, which is the most horrific death anybody could go through. The worst punishment that could occur was crucifixion. And he did that for you because he loves you that much. The Bible says that while we were yet, sinner, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners. And greater love has no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us, friends. I pray that today you give your heart to him unreservedly, wholeheartedly. Give your life completely to him with no reservations. And you watch what he does with your life. It's a glorious and a beautiful thing. Oh my goodness. I pray that you experience that. If you haven't, and maybe you already have, you continue going and you continue to fight the good fight and you continue to remember what he did on the cross and give him more of yourself. Give him more of your attention. Give him more of your life. More, more, more every single day because there is still so much in me that I'm still holding on to. And the Lord's going, Rob, when are you going to give everything over to me? And don't worry, don't be afraid to give yourself over to Christ. The Spirit of God is a wonderful, He's God. He's not going to hurt you. He wants to bless you. And believe me, your life is like this compared to eternity. It's just a vapor, the Bible tells us. And then eternity that will never end. What are you going to do with that decision? How will you make that decision? Will you make that decision today to receive Christ? I pray that you do. Because again, he loves you. And so Lord, receive our worship now. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me just read something to you and then we'll take communion together. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 23, Paul, speaking to the Corinthians, he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took the bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, and do this in remembrance of me. And so let's take the bread together in remembrance. And notice that same evening, just hours before he would be wrongfully arrested and wrongfully tried and all the illegal things that happened to him. It says, in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant, the new testament, the new testament, the testament that Jesus did was his life for yours. And even before he did it, he knew that it was going to happen, because that's why he was called to come to the earth, to save sinners like you and me. How thankful we are. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do, notice, as often as you drink it and do it in remembrance. It's a token. Do it in remembrance of me. So let's do that. Let's stand and let's pray and then we'll worship. Father, we thank you for this time. Lord, may the resurrection of Jesus never cease, Lord, to capture our hearts again. And Lord, thank you for the 
the, the price that was paid, Lord, such an amazing price, a, a, a price that none of us could pay. None of us could even be willing to pay. The whole world wouldn't be sufficient. All the gold in the world would not be sufficient to pay the price for the sin of all of mankind. And yet, Lord, you did it. You did it once and for all, as the Bible tells us. And Lord, we dare not add anything to it. We simply acknowledge it. And we worship you now as a result of it. Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name.